You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado from our series, The Trouble Is. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Good morning. Welcome to Whitefields. We're so glad that you have joined us today for worship and, and studying God's Word. Would you please open with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. So the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Matthew, chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. When the Pharisees heard that he, this Jesus, had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and this morning as we consider this topic, Lord, we consider all of your creation, and we pray that as we as we consider you, as we consider science, as we consider the natural world and the universe and, and all of these things, Lord, may these considerations draw us to a greater worship and praise of you. Lord, may they draw us to see you for how great and glorious you are. And Lord, we just pray that that would be the end of today, would be that we understand the gospel more, that we understand who you are more, and we are drawn into your awe and worshiping you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So right now we are in the middle of a series which is called The Trouble Is. The Trouble Is. And so in this series we're taking six weeks to address some of the toughest questions, some of the biggest hurdles that people say that they struggle with when it comes to embracing Christianity or putting their faith in Jesus. We, in preparation for this series, took a poll and we asked people, you know, what are the biggest things that you struggle with? Maybe you're not a Christian and he... We want to know why. What, it, what is the reason that you would say, this is the reason why I can't believe in God? And if you are a Christian, we also want to know because what we found is that there are a lot of people who are Christians and yet you have sincere questions. You say, look, I'm a Christian. I believe. I want to believe. But to, if I'm really honest with you, I, I do have some things that I'm not sure about that I, I really would like to know the answer to because I want to know that what I believe is actually true, not just what I feel. And, and then we also have know that there are so many people who are just, they don't know exactly. They, they, they're not sure what to do. With all, with all these different opinions and ideas and evidences and things like that. And I'll tell you, these are the kind of conversations that we get really excited about here at Whitefields. We really love talking to people about the real issues that, that are really the things that they're really struggling with when it comes to faith in Jesus and embracing Christianity. Because our hope, my hope, through doing this series is that hopefully we can remove some of those barriers, some of those things that people think are barriers, show them that they're not really barriers. We can remove them so that people can wholeheartedly embrace Jesus and put their faith in him. So this is week three out of six. We've done past two weeks. First we look at the Bible. Can you really trust it? Has it been changed? Has it been altered? And why would anyone want to live their life according to some archaic book anyway? Then we talked about hypocrisy last week. Interestingly enough, that was the number one thing, not just in our poll, but in all the polls that have been taken as to why people say that they cannot believe in God. They said it's not because there's a lack of evidence. They said it's because of the behavior of people who call themselves Christians. So we talked about that last week about the issue of hypocrisy. If you missed either of those, 
or other sermons from the past, we do encourage you, go back and listen to them. You can download and listen to all of our past sermons and content online for free, whitefieldschurch.com. We're also on a podcast if you are a podcaster. And we also encourage you, share those with other people because even if maybe it's not the topic or issue that really touches you, there certainly are other people for whom that is the case. So we encourage you to share those with other people as well. Next week, we're going to be talking about a really interesting one, one that I'm excited about, and that is the topic of the Christ myth. So the Christ myth, this is really the theory, and it's a very popular theory. I was just watching a PBS documentary about the Dead Sea Scrolls this week, and they were talking about this thing called the Christ myth. And the Christ myth is basically the idea that Christianity borrowed all of its teachings and doctrines from other ancient religions and myths and things like Horus or Isis and Ishtar and things like that. So we're going to talk about that. Did Christianity just borrow from other, did they just take things from other religions and slap Jesus' name on them and, and kind of mythologize Christianity? And we're going to talk about that next week. So I'm looking forward to that. Then in the final two weeks, we'll talk about suffering and evil. If there's a good God who can do everything and he really loves you, then why doesn't he stop bad things from happening? Why is there suffering and evil in the world? And finally, the last one we'll talk about is the issue of exclusivity and hell. How can Christianity claim to be the only way? And is that a legitimate claim at all? And is there really such a thing as hell? Or was that just some kind of medieval invention that Christians came up with to manipulate people? We're going to talk about those issues in those weeks. This week, we're looking at a topic which ranked pretty high in our poll as to the reason why people have struggles with embracing Christianity. And for some people, that main issue for them is science. That's what we're going to be talking about today. You know, some people would say, hey, I can't believe in God because I believe in science. If you ever watched Nacho Libre, do you remember that Nacho? Libre had this friend who he met in town, Esquilito, and Esquilito said, I don't believe in God, I believe in science. And so some people say, hey, I can't believe in God because I believe in science, and the assumption is that science somehow disproves the existence of God and the validity of the Bible. But is that true? That's what we're going to be talking about today. Another thing we want to talk about, touch on, related to this today is this. One person responded to our poll And they said something that I know a lot of people think. And what they said is, look, the reason I don't believe in God is because I just don't see any evidence. Like if there was some evidence, then maybe I would believe in God. So the question is, is there actually any evidence that God exists? And if so, what is it? We're going to talk about that as well. You know, sometimes people say things, you hear people say things like, faith isn't about facts. Faith is just about feelings. And, you know, if it makes you feel good and it inspires you to be a better person, well, that's all that matters. Let me tell you this. That is not what Christianity believes. Never has and never will. If somebody says that, that's, that's not Christian teaching. Christians don't believe that. See, Christianity, this is one of the things that makes it unique amongst world religions and faith, is that Christianity believes that it absolutely does matter whether what you believe is true or not. Christianity says that what is real is more important than what you feel. And this is something that makes Christianity, again, unique, especially compared to other world religions and faiths, is that Christianity claims to be based on actual facts, and it claims to be based on historical events that actually took place. Right? In other words, not just some esoteric, you know, abstract ideas that we believe in. These are, we're saying these, this is the truth of the universe. These are real events that change the, the history of everything. And so if that's true, Here's what it means. It means that if Christianity is based on facts, not on feelings, that Christianity should stand up to intellectual scrutiny. So does it. That's kind of what we're talking about in this series. In fact, the Bible itself makes that claim. Paul the Apostle in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, if Jesus Christ did not actually rise from the dead, if that's just a, a something that Christians made up, 
If Jesus Christ did not actually rise from the dead, then our faith is in vain. We might as well be doing something else right now. Because if Christianity isn't true, then we shouldn't waste our time with it. So it absolutely matters whether Christianity is true or not. And this morning, here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at uh, two sections. So the first section is going to be this. We want to look at debunking three popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. So we're going to debunk three popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. And then in the second part, we're going to talk about three proofs or evidences that God exists. And I am going to do that in 40 minutes, hopefully. So, And again, we're really only touching the tip of the iceberg. We're just dipping our toe in a lot of these topics. There's so much more that can be said, and and we do encourage you to go on and read more. And again, I've, I've put some of that in the notes. We have been doing a, a series of videos after the sermons this past couple weeks where we, we go on a little bit deeper dive. We post those on the city and on Realm, and so we, we encourage you to check those out as well. Okay, let's start with this. Debunking some popular misconceptions about Christianity and science. Number one, Christianity is anti-intellectual. This is a popular misconception. Have you ever turned on the TV, you know, whether whatever channel it's on, and there's some kind of, you know, news program, a talk show, and it kind of goes like this, right? The host says, tonight uh, we will be talking about the intersection of faith and science, or faith versus science. They say, our first guest is a former University of Oxford professor, evolutionary biologist, and best-selling author. He believes that science, not faith, holds the answers to all of the questions. On the other side of the aisle, we have a guy named Butch who lives in a swamp and dropped out of high school. He doesn't know how to read. He only has five teeth. He wears overalls with no shirt on underneath. And he believes that in the legitimacy of faith and Christianity. That's kind of how it's often portrayed, right? This big caricature of Christians as just being anti-intellectual. That's how it's often portrayed in social media or on TV or even university campuses. That Christianity and, and faith in general is portrayed as being naive simplistic and incompatible with reason. Now, religion, people say, well, you know, if you want to do that, that's fine. Just make sure you keep it to yourself. Let's, let's relegate that to the area of personal opinion and your personal life. But science, on the other hand, should occupy all of life because science is based on truth and evidence, whereas religion and Christianity, that's based on basically uh, wishful thinking and legends. Richard Dawkins, the outspoken British atheist, you know, the leader of the movement called the New Atheism, and he, he says it this, listen to this, he says, faith is a mental illness. It is a great cop-out. It is an excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Now, the question is, is that true? Is that correct? Is Christianity actually anti-intellectual as he asserts that it is? And the answer is no, of course not. Christianity is not anti-intellectual. Actually quite the opposite. Let me, let me show you that Christianity actually gave birth to the modern scientific theory. Okay, so uh, listen to this quote from Professor Alvin Plantinga. Alvin Plantinga is considered one of the premier philosophers of our modern era. Here's what Alvin Plantinga says. Modern science developed out of Christian theology because it presented a world with distinct form, complexity, and design. Christianity challenges us to experiment with what we see, believing that there is order and uniformity to the universe. So there were other civilizations like the Egyptians and, and other ancient civilizations which did have great technological advancements. But it was Christianity uniquely and specifically that gave birth to modern science. And there's a reason for that. Here's part of the reason. Consider what other religions and traditions teach 
about the natural world and universe. So for example, Buddhism and, and Eastern philosophy says that this natural world doesn't actually exist. So like this world that we live in, our bodies, the world that we see, none of it really exists. It's almost kind of like we are living within a virtual reality simulation and none of it's actually real. And so there's no point in studying the natural world because it doesn't actually exist. It's really just a figment of our imaginations. And the goal of reaching transcendence is to realize that and overcome this physical world. Okay, so let's talk about polytheistic and, and religions and animistic religions. These don't do science because they explain everything by saying that the gods must have done it or that, you know, there's a god in the tree or in the rocks and, or in the sun. And so they don't study the natural world in that way because, you know, if they see water bubbling up from somewhere, they'll just say, well, you know, Poseidon stirred it up and that's just how it happens. So there's no scientific reasoning going on there. But the Bible, on the other hand, actually presents us with the basis for science because it presents a world which was created by an intelligent designer. It can be studied, and by studying it, you can actually learn more about that designer. So Judaism and Islam have the same Old Testament. They use the same Old Testament that we do as Christians. But here's why those cultures also didn't give rise to science in the same way that Christianity did. Because Judaism and Islam are focused on what we would call jurisprudence, which basically means rule-keeping. So they're focused on knowing the law and keeping the law. It's about rule-keeping, so jurisprudence. Now, this is, again, what makes Christianity unique amongst world religions. And this is why Christianity gave birth to modern science, because Christianity is not focused on jurisprudence in the same way that Islam and Judaism are. And here's why. Because as Christians, we believe that Jesus kept the law perfectly for us on our behalf and that he imputes to us his righteousness. That's the gospel, that he imputes to us or, or puts in our account or stamps our name on his record. And, and that is how we become right with God. And so our focus is not on jurisprudence and keeping the law. As Christians, our focus is instead on having a relationship with God and knowing God. And that's a big difference, and that's also, again, what leads to science, because one of the ways that we know God is by studying and analyzing the natural world and universe that he created. So think about this also. The heroes of Christianity, who are they? They're all scholars, aren't they? They're all great thinkers and philosophers and scientists. Think about this. The, hero of Christian the heroes of Christianity are, are, are scholars. The Apostle Paul. Augustine, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, David Livingston, Jonathan Edwards. These are scholars. The idea that Christianity is scared of science and learning and deep thinking has never been true. In fact, do you know that the university was a 12th century Christian invention? Harvard, Princeton, Yale, Dartmouth, Brown, they all had they, their beginnings as Christian institutions. So deep thinking and scientific analysis has not only always been encouraged by Christianity, but modern science in large part developed because of Christianity. So where did this idea come from that learning and knowledge are good things that should be encouraged and pursued? That came from the Bible. Again, now let's look at the text that we opened with this morning. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. Here's a scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem. In the previous chapter, chapter 21, we read about Jesus' triumphal entry when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem and he was hailed as Messiah and King and they laid out the red carpet for him, made of palm branches, and they had a ticker tape parade and everybody welcomed him as King. We studied about this just, I think it was four weeks ago for Palm Sunday. 
Matthew 21, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem. He's welcomed, and it is four days after that great welcome that he's crucified. And it tells us in chapter 21 that what we're reading about here in chapter 22 happened the next day. So this is now Monday, the day before Jesus came into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, hailed as the king of the Jews, as the Messiah, the savior of the nation and of the world. And now it's Monday. And so he goes down to the temple and he starts teaching the people. The people start gathering to him. And as he's there teaching the people in the temple court, crowds of people come into him, right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees come and they interrupt him. So here he is teaching. Imagine this. Teaching, even, even the setting like today. We're, we're teaching, we're studying, we're having a talk. And then what if some people came in and they interrupted and they started drilling me with questions. And they interrupted this whole meeting. That's exactly what happened with the Sadducees and the Pharisees who were, who were the two different groups of religious leaders in Jewish society at that time. Now these guys generally hated each other, but there's nothing that brings people who hate each other together more than hating somebody else even more. And that's kind of what they had with Jesus is that they both didn't like Jesus. And the reason was because Jesus was hugely popular and Jesus regularly criticized them or critiqued them for their hypocrisy. And so they didn't like that. So they see Jesus. He's got this big crowd. He's now on their turf. This is their place, Jerusalem, the temple court. So they come around and they're like, hey, they start drilling Jesus with questions, trying to, trying to basically embarrass him, get him to say something that will undermine the people's thinking about him. They're trying to cut him down to size. And so much to their chagrin, they're not able to stump him no matter how hard they try. And that's what chapter 22 is. It's like one after another, these guys line up and they come and they say, okay, Jesus, how about this? And much to their chagrin, they're not able to stump Jesus. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 34. Another person trying to stump Jesus. He says, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, basically the Sadducees had not succeeded at stumping Jesus, then the Pharisees came and they tried. And it says, one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Now it says lawyer... I want you to remember, this is not talking about like trial attorney like Frank Azar. You guys know who he is. The strong arm of the law. Like if you've been in an accident, he's going to get you a big settlement or he'll help you get out of that DUI you got or something like that. It's not that kind of lawyer. No, for the Jews, a lawyer is a class of scholar who, who dedicated their whole life to studying the law of Moses and applying it to real life situations. And so that's what this guy is. And he says, okay. Look, this is my area of expertise. Jesus, why don't you tell me, which is the greatest commandment in the law? This is one of those questions that you can't really answer, right? If I were to ask you, hey, which of your kids do you love the most? Um, uh, you know, how do you answer that? Or, hey, do I look fat in this dress? I mean, not, not that I would wear a dress. I'm saying that a, a female person wearing a dress might ask that question. You know what I'm saying. There are 613 laws in the law of Moses. How can you possibly say that one of those laws is more important than any of the other laws. So he's trying to start a, stir up some kind of controversy and, and do something that will get people, some people, to not like Jesus. And so how does Jesus respond? Well, he responds by quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your mind. And what that means is that you are to love the Lord with every part of your being. Elsewhere, the Bible encourages us to honor God with our bodies, for example. The idea is that with everything that you are, everything you have and everything that you are, you are to use everything that you have, everything that you are, to honor and worship God. Has God given you a voice? Then use it to praise Him. Has God given you an able body, two hands? Then use those two hands to serve Him and to honor Him and to worship Him. Has God given you a mind? 
Well, then use your mind to seek him, to know him, to make him known, to discover everything that he has put out there for you to discover by which you can come to know more about him. And then Jesus goes on to say something else, and this would have been particularly surprising. I don't think too many people were surprised by Jesus' first part of the answer. They were familiar with that. It was called the Shema. They would pray it three times a day. But what would have been really surprising is what Jesus says next. He says, but there's another commandment, the second greatest commandment, and that's related to the first. He says, here it is, love your neighbor as yourself. Now this is interesting, even in our modern age, because there is this kind of common thinking that says, Before you can love anybody else, or in order for you to be able to love somebody else, you have to first focus on loving yourself. But here's what the Bible says. The Bible says, actually, you're already pretty good at loving yourself. I think we can tick that box. You are doing it. You are loving yourself. Good job. Now let's focus on something else. Loving your neighbor doesn't depend on loving yourself more. Rather, the Bible says, the ability to love others actually comes from the understanding of God's love for you. Basically receiving and understanding how much God loves you and what God has done. How he has expressed that love to you. When you realize how much God loves you and and you realize that he has shown that love for you ultimately in actions by sacrificially giving himself, when that sinks in and it astounds you and it overwhelms you, that is what enables you to love other people. And these two things, loving God with all that you are and loving other people as you love yourself, he says that's what all of the law and prophets, the Old Testament, is about. But here's the problem with that, of course. The problem is that none of us have succeeded at doing that perfectly all the time. That is the problem, isn't it? We haven't always loved God with everything that we are, and we haven't always loved our neighbors as we love ourselves. We've fallen short of that, and and that calling that God has for our lives. And that is exactly why we need a Savior. And the good news of the gospel, that's what the gospel means, the good news, the good news of Jesus is that God himself has become our Savior. On the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sins and for all of our shortcomings, and he said, it is finished, paid in full, done, I did it on your behalf. That's what he says. And so what is your part in this? Your part in this is to trust in and rely on and cling to Jesus and what he's done for you rather than trusting in yourself and your own good deeds and your own efforts. But I want you to notice this. Jesus said that the greatest commandment, the greatest commandment, in other words, the thing that God wants most from you is to love the Lord with all your heart, which is emotions, with all your soul, that's the essence of who you are, beyond your your mind and your body, and with all your mind. How do you do that? Well, think about this. Jesus said in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, Jesus said, the essence of eternal life is to know God and to know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. That's the essence of eternal life is to know him. And so the question is this, how do you know God? One of the ways that you can know God is through your mind, studying the natural world and learning about the universe. The Bible tells us that because God designed and created the universe, that there are things that we can learn about him by observing and studying the universe. Psalm 19, which we read, by the way, at the beginning of our service is our call to worship. It says this, The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day and night they speak, and they speak in a language which everyone on earth can understand. 
Because God is our creator, the natural world is covered with his fingerprints, his imprint, his designs reveal things about him. Romans chapter 1, it says this, that what can be known about God, his invisible attributes, they have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So for example, one way that the Bible tells us this is that if you observe the natural world, you will notice the love and mercy of God and the patience of God towards all people. So for example, it says that the rain falls on the wicked and the righteous alike. Now why is that interesting? We think, oh no, it's raining on my parade. No, it rain, think about it. If you live in the Middle East, if you live in desert, even if you live in Colorado, rain's a blessing. You need it for your crops. You need it for your animals. You need it to have something to drink. So it's saying that God rains down blessing on the righteous and the wicked, both of them. In other words, God shows kindness. He shows mercy. He shows long-suffering and patience, even towards people who don't do what he wants them to. That tells us something about the character of God. The, the point is this, by studying nature, by studying the universe, we can learn a lot about who God is and how God works. And, and it's not just the natural sciences like biology and cosmology, by the way, that teach you about God. It's also the social sciences. So, so you know, my, my studies have always been in the area of humanities. But, but the Bible says that God created us as human beings in his own image. Now, we have fallen. In other words, we're broken. We're not what we should be, but we still have his fingerprints on us. We still bear his image. And so even as we study humanities, as we study art, as we study anthropology, things like that, there are things that we can learn about who God is. Now, we do need another form of knowledge beyond just what we can observe. We need to have personal knowledge of God. And that comes through what is called special revelation. So you have general revelation. That's what you can learn by observing nature and science. But you also need special revelation. Special revelation is when God acts in history or speaks specially to reveal himself and his will to people. So that's where the Bible comes in. And the ultimate special revelation of God was Jesus Christ himself. He was the special revelation of God in which God was revealing himself to us in the fullest form. And he spoke in words that we can understand. And he gave his life for us, the greatest expression of who he is and how he loves us. But here's the thing. The Bible never once tells us that we should think of facts and science as dangerous to our faith. Just the opposite. It encourages us to use the brains that God has given us to follow the evidence. And again, the greatest commandment in the whole Bible includes a command to love God by using your whole mind. Okay, so that's the first of the misconceptions that we need to debunk, that Christianity is anti-intellectual. That's simply not the case. Sure, you can find examples of people who are anti-intellectual, but it's not at all characteristic of Christianity or its teachings. And that's proven by the fact that if you look at the heroes of Christianity, they're all scholars. They're, they're not hillbillies who live in swamps and eat roadkill and, and can't read. And, and here in Colorado, I think this is a particularly important point because if you look at statistics and demographics, right, the front range of Colorado, so basically from Denver to Fort Collins, this is one of the most highly educated regions in the entire United States. And it's becoming even more so every single day as different companies and, and industries come in and, and that's taking place. And so it's more and more important that we make this very clear to people that faith and reason are not opposed to each other, but they actually belong together. And, and that's my next point. They belong together. And here's why. Because the second popular misconception that, that needs to be debunked is this. Number two, science is objective, but Christianity is subjective. Science is objective, Christianity is subjective. That is a misconception. 
When it comes to talking about the origin of the universe and the origin of species, science can only theorize. And here's why. Because science is about observing and analyzing data. But when it comes to the origin of the universe or the origin of species, we have some data that we're dealing with, but it's observable, but it is not repeatable. In other words, you cannot repeat the Big Bang, if that's your theory. You cannot repeat the Precambrian era. You can't create that in a laboratory or anywhere. And so because of that, scientists can only come up with theories um, and tr basically they're trying to piece together what they think might have happened. And in any theory, because it's unrepeatable, because untestable, there, there's no way to prove it. And so here's the point. Data is objective, but theories, by definition, are subjective. Explanations of the data are subjective. Here's an example that I came across of, of kind of subjectivity in science. I read this article by a nurse. She's a nurse. She's a Christian. She works in a hospital. And when she went to work for this hospital, she made it clear that she was a Christian. And she had tried to pray with some patients and talk to families about hope for eternity and faith in Jesus when they were coming up to their final moments. And she had been told very clearly, no, keep your faith out of the workplace. This is a secular place. This is a place for, you know, science and facts, not for your faith. And so she said there's no, no room for faith uh, in dealing with patients. But here's what she noticed. She noticed that over and over, whenever a patient would die or if it was time to uh, remove a patient from life support and the doctor needed to talk to the family about it, they would always say the same thing. And what they would say is, well, at least we know that they're not suffering anymore. Or if we do pull the plug, that they will not suffer anymore and that they'll be at peace. And this nurse said, well, that's totally, wait a second, how do you know that? She confronted her, how do, you, how do you know that? You are making a metaphysical statement. It's a metaphysics, by the way, meta in Greek means beyond. So it would be beyond physics, okay? So you are going beyond science when you make that point. It means that that's the area which science cannot speak to because they have no, nothing to analyze or to say anything about. So to say that when a person dies, that they're no longer suffering or that they're at peace, that's a metaphysical belief about what the afterlife is actually like. And these doctors were making medical decisions based on their personal beliefs. In other words, they might have believed it with their whole hearts, but they had zero scientific evidence to back it up. In fact, Einstein hypothesized that based on physics, he believed that the human psyche lived on after a person's body and, and mind stops functioning. But there's no way to to know whether a person is actually free from suffering or pain after death. And, and my point is that if you say that, again, you're making a metaphysical statement. Don't think that that's science. In an article published in the New York Review of Books, a biologist named Richard Luonton admitted this. He said, when the evidence is non-conclusive or inconclusive, most scientists will always favor a naturalistic explanation for things. And check this out. Here's what he said. Because... We have a prior commitment, remember that phrase, prior commitment to materialism. In other words, they're, they're already dis predisposed towards a particular commitment. Again, that is subjectivity, not objectivity. Not only is science not purely objective, but neither is faith purely subjective. This past week, I was preparing for this topic and thinking a lot about it. So I watched this video debate between Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. Both of them are Oxford professors. One of them is an atheist. The other one is a Christian. And so they were talking about uh, these things. And it was really interesting because the one thing that they both agreed on, they didn't agree on very much, but they did agree on one thing. And that is this. What really matters is what is true? 
What is true? That is what matters. In other words, what is real is more important than what you feel. And as Christians, that is something that we absolutely believe. That's inherent to our, our belief system. Our faith is not just in abstract things that may or may not exist. We believe that there really is a God, that Jesus was a, a real person. He died on a certain date in a particular place that you can go and visit. Some of us are going to do that as a church next year. And, and he really did rise again. And guess what? All of the evidence points to the fact that that really happened, and none of it has been disproven. In fact, if it were disproven, Christianity would literally cease to exist. See, everyone has faith in metaphysical things. Everyone. The question is, what is your faith based on? For Christianity, our faith is based on historical events and facts, not feelings. Now let's get to the third one, and this one will be short. Third one, scientists don't believe in God. That's the third misconception. Scientists don't believe in God. Now I mentioned earlier that Christianity gave birth to modern science, but the opposite, the, the reverse of that is also true. That many people, through science and through engaging their mind, that has often led people to belief in God and even to belief in Christianity. Check out this quote from Alan Sandage, who is widely considered to be the greatest cosmologist of our modern age. He said this, It is my science which led me to the conclusion that the world is more complicated than can be explained by science. Science studies the natural physical world, but the existence of God is a metaphysical question. Check this out. The American Association for the Advancement of Science. This is not a Christian organization. This is a secular organization. And they did a poll, a survey of their own community, the scientific community, about belief in God. They were curious. Do scientists believe in God? And here's what they found. 51% of scientists believe in God. And in the hard sciences, meaning astronomy, biology, chemistry, people are actually more likely to believe in God than even that. 37% of those, 51%, believe in a personal God. So not just some kind of idea that maybe there's a creator, but they actually believe in a personal God. 7% are agnostic, which means that a minority percentage are actually atheists. So according to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, most scientists believe there's a God. So this is a complete misconception, misnomer that scientists don't believe in God. The truth is that most actually do. Now let's talk briefly, and we'll close with this. Evidences for God. Is there any evidence that God actually exists? Alvin Plantinga, I mentioned him a little bit earlier. He's a professor of philosophy, and he became a Christian. And here's what he says. He says there are about two dozen uh, philosophical arguments that can be made for the existence of God. And while there's not one that's a slam dunk, you know, case closed, nail in the coffin argument, if you bring them all together like a, a lawyer might do in a, in a court case, he said they, they make an incredibly convincing case for the fact that God does exist. Now, of course, we don't have time to go through all of those in detail right now. I put a link in your notes for this book called The Reason for God. Go check that out. Uh, it deals with seven of those two dozen or so evidences. I highly recommend the book if you're interested in further reading. It's called The Reason for God. For the rest of our time today, I'm just going to introduce you to three evidences which have been particularly pivotal in leading atheists to become theists and from there to become Christians. So number one, there is the evidence from morality. So this past week, interesting thing I read in the news, it was, it was all over Twitter and all these things, the American Atheist Association fired their president, David Silverman, over what? Moral failure. 
And here's, they issued a statement that said, we expect the highest standards from all of our employees. But the guy who got fired, David Silverman, he said he doesn't think that he did anything wrong. He thinks that they actually did something wrong because they fired him and that was unjust. And this brings up a really big question. It kind of sounds like, as they're having this back and forth, that they're arguing about something and they both agree to a certain set of rules. There are a certain set of rules that they both agree to, that this is the way that you should do things, this is the right way to do things, and the the other one did not follow those rules. And here's what's really interesting. American atheists, as, a, as an organization, they didn't turn this guy into the police because they said, well, what he did wasn't actually a crime. We just think it was immoral. In other words, he didn't commit something that they can actually point to and say this was illegal. It's just, in their opinion, it was immoral. And the point is this, that both sides believe that there is somehow this set of unwritten rules which everybody is supposed to know and follow. The question is, where did that come from? Christianity says they came from God. If you have a moral law, that implies that there is a moral law giver. But people who reject the idea of God, they struggle to come up with an explanation for morality. Why is it that in every culture, you know, morals might vary a little bit, but we are moral beings. There are certain things that everybody agrees on that are just plain wrong. See, if it was just a survival of the fittest mentality, then that would mean that I should always just act in my own self-interest. I should do what benefits me and my family and not other people. In other words, there's no evolutionary explanation for what we call altruism. Altruism is when you do something self-sacrificial, when you do something that doesn't benefit you, that you do it for the sake of another person, even a complete stranger. So for example, let's, let's imagine you're in New York City, someone tries to commit suicide or, or they fall into the, the tracks uh, in, in the subway and you jump in and you save them at risk or even at cost of your own life. You sacrifice yourself for someone else. From an evolutionary standpoint, there's no reason why you should do that. And yet, over and over, from generation to generation, culture to culture, this is built into us as human beings, even though it doesn't benefit us from an evolutionary standpoint. Think about generosity. If you make a lot of money, then why wouldn't you just keep it all for yourself? Why would you even feel that you should give any of it away? Why is it that humans over and over come back to this idea of morality and ethics, altruism? That it makes no sense from an evolutionary standpoint. I want to read you a quote from a famous evolutionist. I actually put his name in the notes so you're going to know who it is, but I'll just read you the quote. Man scans with scrupulous care the breed and pedigree of his horses, cattle, and dogs before he matches them. But when he comes to his own marriage, man rarely uses such care. Both sexes ought to refrain from marriage if they are anyway inferior in body or in mind. Which means, hey, if you're dumb or you're ugly, you shouldn't be allowed to have kids. Okay, so here's what that's saying. We breed animals, right, as purebreds because we want them to get the purebred, right? We want to have the pure breed. And why don't we do the same with humans is what he's saying. We should create purebred humans a superior breed of humans. And those people who are ugly or dumb, well, they should not be allowed to breed. They shouldn't be allowed to have children. And okay, maybe we could, you know, move them to a different part of society where we can let them do their, their stuff and make ugly, dumb babies. But we, we don't want to contaminate the gene pool with, with, those, with those bad people, the mutts. We want to keep the purebreds pure. You know who said that? It's in the notes, so you do know who said it. It's Charles Darwin. He said it in his book, The Descent of Man. And this statement by itself and the book that it comes from, led to the practice of eugenics, which is trying to breed superhumans, purebred humans. And this led to 
Literally, you could follow the line. It led to the rise of Nazism in Germany. It's because when you start saying my race is better than your race and your race shouldn't be allowed to breed with our race and I think that your race should actually be exterminated. That's what led to the extermination of six million Jews. This is a basis for discrimination. This is what led to laws even in our own country, which we're now getting rid of, against interracial marriage. This is racism and prejudice. This is the basis for it. Now maybe you say, hey, wait a second. I don't believe that. That was, that was a long time ago. Everybody thinks that's wrong. The question is this. Even if you think it's wrong, why do you think it's wrong? Why? why? Why are you repulsed by this? Why do you find this to be repulsive as an idea? Why is there something in you that says, no, racism is bad. All people have dignity. Why, why do you believe that we should care for the vulnerable and the weak and the poor rather than just leaving them to fend for themselves and die if they die? The Bible puts it this way. Here's how the Bible explains it. When Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, that shows that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their consciences also bear witness. In other words, the fact that we are moral creatures points to something that is beyond natural process. Not natural processes, or however you say it. Natural processes. The fact that we do things that are completely unnatural and altruistic, that don't benefit us from an evolutionary standpoint, they point to the fact that we were designed by an intelligent designer, a moral designer, who left his mark on us. This last two will be quick. The evidence from cosmology. The evidence from cosmology. One of the fundamental tenets of scientific thought is this idea of causation. In other words, anything that exists had to have a cause that caused it to come into existence. Those of you who are parents, where did your kids come from? Did you just come home from shopping one day and you're like, oh, hey, there's some kids. Awesome. They just appeared out of nowhere. No, I think you know exactly where they came from. And you know exactly where you came from, even if you don't want to think about that, and your parents and all that. If you have a business, you know where it came from. You didn't just wake up one day and you had a business. No, you had to start it, you had to build it, you had to develop it. If you have a car, it didn't just show up in a car lot somewhere. There was an engineer, there was a factory, it didn't just appear out of thin air. And when you apply that to the universe, the same thing applies. Where did the universe come from? For many years, the argument from atheists and agnostics was, well, the universe just came from nothing. How do we know? Maybe the universe has always existed. The universe is eternal. And the universe is what gave birth to everything else. That idea was debunked in 1929 with the use of the Hubble telescope. No scientist believes that anymore. And the reason is because cosmologists determined with the use of the Hubble telescope that there must have been a time when the universe came into existence, which means this, there was also a time when the universe did not exist. See, that's what Christians have always believed. We, we teach something, we believe something called creation ex nihilo, which just in, in Latin means creation out of nothing. God created everything out of nothing. He didn't have any, it wasn't, he didn't have some clay that he used. He created everything out of nothing. Cosmology all, all actually says that all the evidence points to that as well. Lee Strobel was an investigative reporter for a newspaper in Chicago. And he took it upon himself as an atheist. He said, I'm going to take it upon myself to do some investigative reporting and I'm going to disprove Christianity. I'm going to prove that it's, it's wrong, that it's made up. And the end result of that was that he did not actually succeed in disproving Christianity. But as he looked into it, he ended up becoming a Christian. And he's written several books on the subject. But I wanted to read you this quote that he had uh, on this subject. He says this, To continue in atheism, I'd need to believe that nothing produces everything. Non-life produces life. Randomness produces fine-tuning. Chaos produces information. Unconsciousness produces consciousness. And non-reason produces reason. I just don't have that much faith. 
The last reason, let's say, we'll close with this. The evidence from design. Francis Collins is an award-winning scientist. He's the director of the Human Genome Project. It is a human Genome Project, something done in our lifetime where scientists mapped the human genome. Is a ton of work. And here's this guy, Francis Collins. He's the president of this project. And here's what he said. He said that the more he studied science, he started out as an atheist. He said there must be something more than this. There must be something behind this. And that journey led him to believe in God and then to actually become a Christian. This man mapped the human genome and he called the genetic code. He said it's like the language of God. Check this out. If there's one amoeba, an amoeba has so much genetic code that it could fill 30 encyclopedias. And think about how much more complex we are. And he said that level of complexity that exists just in us, not to mention in our solar system, which is incredibly balanced and delicate, it couldn't have happened by accident and it couldn't have developed. It's a huge topic. Again, I have 40 minutes here. Uh, I'm excited that this week we're starting community groups and part of what you're doing in your community groups is discussing the things that we've talked about here and going deeper. And so I want to really encourage you to do that and read up more on these topics. But here's the thing. I've given you a couple reasons, just very briefly, about how we can know with a high degree of certainty that God actually exists. Now, I hope that I've been able to show you that Christianity and science are not at odds with each other, that they go together, and that science is one way that we can look into nature and actually learn about God. But at the end of the day, you have to decide what you're going to do with that. I can lay it all out there for you. But you have to decide what you're going to do with that. Did you know that the Bible, in Romans chapter 1, it says that there are a lot of people who, it's not because they don't have the evidence, but that they refuse to follow the evidence where it leads because they're afraid of the implication. Because the implication is that if there is a God, then you owe him your entire life, your entire being. And that's where, where a lot of people don't want to go. See, think about this. They say, well, I don't want to give up control of my life. And here's the one last thing I'll tell you. The idea that if you follow Jesus or you give your life to him, if you think that will mean giving up your freedom, you couldn't be more wrong. It doesn't mean that. It means just the opposite. You see, you will never know true freedom until you know what it means to be forgiven of your sins, to enter into a relationship with your creator, and to embrace the purpose for which he created you. And that is possible through Jesus Christ. I encourage you today to look to him, look to what he did, and follow the evidence all the way to him. Would you please stand with me and we'll pray. Lord God, we, we thank you that we've had the chance to uh, talk about some of these things. And Lord, we ask that you would help us that we might truly love you with all of our hearts, all of our soul, and all of our minds. Lord, I pray for anybody struggling with uh, these questions or doubts. Lord, I pray that as they seek you, Lord, that they would find the answers to those things. I pray that you'd remove the barriers that exist in our minds. Lord, that we might fully embrace you wholeheartedly and with faith. Lord, I pray as we go from here today, Lord, that we would know the true expression of who you are and your love that is found in Jesus. But thank you for your love. Thank you that you reached out to us and made us your own and invited us into relationship with you. That is what we desire to do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. 